You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, it's Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. Very excited to be with all of you today, but even more excited, if I really acknowledge it, to be with Susie Welsh, who I have not seen. I mean, it must have been at least two or three years. I guess so. That's too bad, because it's always fun to be with you. It's always fun to be with you. Susie, as I'm sure so many of you know, is a regular career and business contributor to the Today Show these days, although you and I have yet to run into each other in makeup. I don't know how that's happened. I know. Because I, I spend have to spend a lot of time in makeup. Well, too. Uh, not nearly as much as I do. <laughs> it's a little like bingo, getting in those makeup yeah. chairs, you know? They tell you exactly where to go and where to sit and to put down your coffee, and it's it's a process. You're doing a lot of work these days on CNBC. I am. On yeah. Power Lunch, mm-hmm. particularly. Yes. And you and your husband, Jack Welsh, are authors of The Real Life MBA, of winning, and and you know from years back that I am a huge fan of 101010, your best selling book. Thank you so much. Yeah. So thank you again for being here. Yesterday was your birthday. It was. It was. It was a great day. We sort of started celebrating a few days before my actual birthday so that when I actually got up in the morning on my real birthday, I said to Jack, Isn't there something you want to say to me? And he said, Good morning. I said, No, this is the real day. It's my birthday <laughs> because we started early. <laughs> Did this birthday mark anything special? Anything changing this year? Anything, any goals with the birthday? No, I'm 57. So it wasn't a birthday with a zero in it. um, So there was no sort of, uh, but I have always had this sense that age is a state of mind and I I feel young and I feel I'm blessed to be healthy. And so it's great to have a birthday and to stop and take stock of, you know, what's going on in all the different uh, areas of your life. And I did actually stop and I I wrote down work, uh, family, faith, fitness, just all these sort of areas that I sort of roughly break my life out into and sort of took a measure of what was going on in each one and saw just took a peek to see if they were all in the amounts that I wanted. And I, I, I did pretty well there. Yeah, they're lining up for you. Okay. Right now, okay. I mean, we were talking before we launched the show that it's very difficult these days to separate work from life from, I mean, I guess you can separate it from fitness, but I've even got people that I work with that I now run with. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't separate anything. I surrendered on that years ago. I gave in. There was not going to be separation. And uh, you have to manage that because it can get very muddy if you're sort of talking with a kid and you take a work call and that's not good for either. But you, so you have to manage it. But I have stopped trying to say I'm at work or I'm at play um, because uh, uh, it did. that was not a successful recipe for me. And our kids learn it from us. My son just got his first job. He is now out in L.A. He's working for the NFL Networks. And I was out there last week visiting him, seeing his apartment for the first time. So he got off work. I took an Uber over to his apartment. I came in and he 
was on a conference call with his team, and I sat there for 45 minutes playing games on、mm-hmm. my phone while he did a conference call with、yeah. his team. It just felt like I, I was、It's、in karma. an、uh, alternate right, universe. Right, right? No, I mean it happens. All my kids are adults now, and I see them doing exactly what we urged them to do, which was to over deliver and to really build their careers. And so I'm not going to get in the way while they're trying to do it. I mean, I am not. I just had a, I have a close girlfriend, and her daughter went to business school and、um, had a choice of three different jobs, and the The least good of the jobs was close to my girlfriend's house, and I and um、uh, and she said, "Oh, I hope she takes that one." And I just burst a gasket. I said, "What did we kill? We raised our kids together." I said, "What? What did we kill ourselves with that SAT prep and those? You know, all those things that we did to build them. Was it so that she could end up living close to you, or did we do it so that she could have a life that would?" Go on when we were not here anymore, and she said, "Okay, duly noted, duly noted." And but it's hard to let go. I it, it was、yeah. harder to put him on that plane to L.A. than it was harder to put him on the plane to college because at yes, college, at least I knew he was going to be back for Thanksgiving, and this、yeah. year I know he's going to be working. Well, I have one in L.A. also, and I just tell you. You come to love L.A. because、yes. that's a great city. I am excited to spend some time in L.A. So you mentioned your friend whose daughter went to business school. You and Jack have a different approach to business school. You've got a, a book and a program called the Real Life MBA. Tell me a little bit about it and how close to actual business school does it come? Well, the business school came first. I mean, years ago, people who ran a business school approached Jack and said, "What a, you have this、uh, methodology? You have a, a way to do business. Have you ever thought about starting a business school?" And he was like. First, he was no, no, no. Long story short, the school is now an online accredited MBA program. It, it actually is in the top twenty-five best online programs from Princeton Review, and it's、uh, it's a terrific program. It has thirteen hundred students and six、uh, hundred graduates, and so we. Have this school, and it has students from around the world. There, everybody who goes there is working. It's not for people who are right out of college or sort of thinking about business. You have to be a working professional to go there. And as the school was going along and taking off, actually,、uh, we started to think about writing a book that also had this. It really. If you didn't have time to go to business school, or even if you did, this would be a, sort of a, a, a manual for you. Business changes so much, though, that there's not there's no sort of last book on business. And、mm-hmm. you know, even in our chapter on marketing, we say you know by the time this book comes out, marketing will have because of marketing is so digital now, marketing will have facets to it we we do not capture here, and that's 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 what makes business fun, frankly, all the change. So when you when you look at The book itself, the real life MBA, for people who think I don't have time for this, or it's not the right time in my life for this, but I'd still like to learn the skills. I mean, what can you teach people in a book that gets them close to that degree? Well, I've, I've, if I if you wanted to. Have what was an MBA, and you didn't have time for one. I would say read Winning, our first book, and the Real Life MBA. And what you can teach them is, is you know, look. It all comes down to the people, right? It all comes down to your team. And both the books are incredibly, I think, rich. But、uh, you know, I'm the co-author of them on advice on how to manage and lead people because your team, it's it, it, it people scrimp on people, and、uh, managers do it first. And you learn the hard way usually in business that、um, your people are all you've got. And so I think it has a lot of、uh, very good advice on nurturing people and and helping them grow, and also knowing when somebody has to go. I mean, sometimes somebody is just not right for your organization, and you hold on for a long time、uh, for all sorts of emotional reasons. But you'd actually be helping both of you if you said, "Why don't you go find work that's more meaningful to you and stop doing what you're doing to our culture?" Because culture, you can have the greatest strategy in the world, but if you have a dysfunctional culture,、um, your business is not going to make it. One of the things that you touch on in the book is fear of finance,、mm-hmm. and we know from a lot of research. 
research that women are more afraid than men of investing and of finance in general, which I, the tide is definitely turning there. It's not turning fast enough for me. So how do you approach that fear and help people over it? Look, we had this chapter, Fear of Finance, because our professors kept telling us that people would kept on putting off the finance courses. And then they would start taking the finance courses and they would be like, um, and I hate to be gender focused about this, but it was more women than men. And they would just say, you know, I can't do finance. I, uh, I, there was so much emotionality wrapped up in it. And so we have a totally different approach to finance, which is to start off by saying, guess what? You can do finance and so can everyone. Let's just talk about what it is. You know, I remember back, I also had this fear of finance. I went to business school your traditional leafy campus on Harvard Business School. I had been a journalist before I went to business school. I was a person who lived paycheck to paycheck. It was pretty easy to manage those finances because if it's just paycheck to paycheck, you pay your rent. You pay. I remember actually driving to the telephone company to pay my bills, that kind of thing. Then I got to business school and um, finance was hard. Um, I was surprised that I had a little bit of an aptitude for it and I sort of liked it anyway. I got into it and I really um, embraced it. I, I think because I ended up finding out that I was better at it than I thought it would be. But the point of the story is that then comes the big exam at the end of the semester. And I thought, oh, it was going to be a lot of numbers. It was going to be a lot of number crunching. There were going to be a lot of graphs. We had to draw all the stuff they teach you in finance, first year finance and business school. And we got there and they handed out the exam. And I'm not kidding. It was it was like two sentences, the exam. They gave you a blue book. And the exam said, Joe Smith uh, has worked for 20 years at um, XYZ Tractor Company. He is now thinking about opening up his own tractor company. Should he? And that was the entire exam. And I thought, oh, yes, this is finance. Finance is really gets right down to it. It is just stepping back and thinking, can I afford this? Well, there's a couple of questions I need to answer. Um, what are my sources of income? Uh, what, uh, what people do I have around me? What, what would it cost to do things? So it's really sort of figuring out stuff that's really intuitive. We put this name finance on it and suddenly it's not intuitive to us anymore. Um, and I always come back to that exam saying, oh, yeah, I can do finance because I, I looked at that empty exam book and I thought, okay, what would it take for this guy to start a tractor company? What, what, what does he need to know? And what are the assumptions I can make? And it was it was revelatory. Do you feel the same way about investing? I never for a long, long time, Jean, had money to invest. But when I finally made some money to invest, I followed the old-fashioned advice that you should invest in what you know. And as soon as I got a little bit of money, I started experimenting with companies that I thought just in my bones were going to do well. And I got a lot of pushback from my um, broker on it. But I remember there was a company and my kids introduced me to it. It was a digital company and it was doing, I thought it was just great. And so I said, well, I want to invest. I mean, it was a relatively small sum, like $5,000. I want to invest in it. And I remember my broker saying to me, we really don't think, uh, blah, 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 you know, that this is going to take off. And and I said, you know, uh, I'm going to, I'm just going to put this money in. It's If I lose it, it's it's not going to kill me. And I put it in, and about uh, six weeks later, the company was sold, and I got a big windfall, okay? And that was the beginning of my investing. And I basically said, I'm going to invest in stuff that I know and really believe in. And just recently, I started investing in companies um, that are focusing on really cutting-edge technologies in food, uh, in food technology, because it's a field I'm very interested in. And I have to trust my own instincts, and some work and some don't, but my track record is pretty good. Just going on my own, you know, trusting myself. Investing in what you know is the old Peter Lynch yes. methodology, yeah. which is 
a good time, I think, to remind people that her money is brought to you by the one-time home of Peter Lynch, Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find a lot of conversations like this one with Susie Welsh. You'll find information about how to manage your money, about life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether we're talking about getting married or divorced or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be in the studio today with Susie Welsh. And I, I want to talk a little bit about some research that I know you're doing these days about women and their careers and where women tend to get advice about their careers. And it's different for yeah, men. Yeah. I mean, I I am very curious because I have a speaking business uh, and I often speak about women and their careers and how you think about your careers. I am amazed by the hunger that women have to talk about careers and career choices and how you build your career and managing your boss and then managing your first team. And and I have been trying to um, understand better where women get their advice about careers. And the range is really, it's, it's really wide. I mean, it starts with some people ask their moms or their dads. Mm-hmm. Our kids ask us a lot, but you know, we are people who are sort of steeped in this. So that sort of, I guess, makes sense. And, uh, we advise them. And I, I there's actually, there was recently our daughter, the one in LA had a career decision. She, she actually said to the person who wanted to hire her on the phone, you know, I, um, I have to think about this and I'll, I'll get back to you. And she actually hung up and called us. Um, so sometimes your parents are a great source. And I'm talking about younger women, really. Um, uh, but, you know, what books are they reading and what websites do they go to and what are they listening to? Or are you getting it by looking at movies or, or shows on TV? Is it Shark Tank? What is it? Where are women getting career advice? And I think that that's a topic. Um, we do talk about careers with our girlfriends, but where are we going outside of our inner circle? So that's I, I'm trying to get a handle on that. I don't know the answer yet. Um, I'm looking forward to figuring it out. When women talk about our careers, you say that women tend to talk about balance, whereas men tend to talk about the trajectory, the path forward. What does this tell you? I I think this is one of the great things that Cheryl Cheryl Sandberg is a a very smart person and has done many great things, and Lean In is a, a wonderful book. But I think that one of the great things that she says is, stop talking about balance so much. Talk about your career. Talk about business. And I am stunned stunned when I hear a young woman with no kids sort of talk to me about how she's going to put balance into her life. Look, that's so my values are different than that in that I, I had four kids. But when I started off in my career, I, I was hungry to do both. And I wasn't sort of thinking at age 23 or 24, how am I going to balance this all? I just thought, man, I got energy. I got stamina. I've got grr. And I'm just going to try to do everything and, and see how it it works out. And, you know, you keep on experimenting and you keep figuring things out. Well, uh, and you make choices along the way. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you and I are similar in that way. When I was ready to go, I was just ready to go. And I would say that to people who were sort of taken aback by the notion that, you know, staying home was just not something on my radar, right. even after I had children. And I think you cobble it together along you the way. I mean, to, I right because you don't know your kid. I mean, like some kids are very demanding, and some kids make it easy for you. You don't you don't know anything, you know, f- you uh, from afar. It's when you're in the middle of it, and you realize, okay, how much balance do I need, and how much do I want? I mean, I I really wanted to work, and I did not want to uh, work part time. I wanted to have a full time job, and I I got a lot of heat on it, and I from close friends and from family, and I had close friends and 
family that stopped working when their kids came and they uh, were very outspoken in their feelings that I was making a mistake. And I used to say, look, um, one day the kids are going to be gone, but I'm going to still be here and I'm going to want to have built a life that will, that when the kids are gone, I won't be wondering what to do next. And uh, this was not received very well. But I, I luckily had, my kids really believed in me. And so we were a team together and it worked out wonderfully, thanks be to God. But it wasn't easy to be, look, in our generation, it wasn't easy to be a woman who actually sort of out loud said, I am going to continue to work full time and I really, really want to. Yeah. I think I, I, I found my support on the train, on the yeah, commuter yeah. train into the city. That's, that's where I made my friends. Yeah. Other working moms were a huge support to me. I, I used to hate things like when I would, uh, this is terrible to say, but like I would somehow arrange it to skip work to go to like the Valentine's Day party at school and the moms who had made different decisions than I had not, you know, would sort of make their displeasure with your decision known. And I, I think, I hope those days are gone. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so for our daughters. I hope that they're gone. I am not going to let you go without talking about 101010 <laughs> because I know it's in your past. Yeah. No, um, I mean, it's been seven years, I think, since, since, since that, that book, book came, came out. out. But it has um, a wonderful long tail to it. And I, I still regularly hear from people whose lives it's helped. So I remember reading about it first in Oprah Magazine yep. where you wrote about it. Explain it for people who are not familiar with the concept, because I find it very, very useful whenever you're facing a decision that you are having trouble making. Yeah, you know, it's a decision-making tool. And I've always found it amazing that you can go to school and you can learn how to get, you know, calculate the volume of a cylinder, but they don't teach you how to make a decision. And I think that you can separate people um, in terms of maturity, in terms of, you know, when you ask them, how do you make a decision? And you know, a lot of times in life, momentum makes the decision for us, or by not deciding, we decide, or we decide according to somebody else's values. So 101010 is a tool um, that very simply um, impels you to take a look at a, a decision you have to make and think about the consequences of your different options in 10 minutes, you know, the immediate future, uh, 10 months, the foreseeable future, and 10 years, which is that life you want to create. And it seems like a very simple tool, but because it only really works when you know your values, it actually gets to be a little bit more complicated because you can sort of make that calculus on a decision, but you won't know which one of the options is really best for you and, until you know what really matters to you. And so the hard work of 10-10-10 is articulating to yourself and admitting to yourself and the people around you what your value system is. Then you can use 10-10-10 with ease on small and large decisions. And what it does is it ends up making your decisions very deliberate. And actually, um, the biggest benefit for me with my kids and the people who ended up working for me and so forth was that it made my decisions transparent and consistent. And that is a great gift to give yourself and those around you, just transparent, consistent decision-making. My kids use it now, so I think that's always been very uh, gratifying to me is my daughter will call up or my son who lives in Seattle, they'll have, he'll have a decision to face and he'll say, can we 10, 10, 10 this? And he'll say, oh. We I certainly can. <laughs> we certainly can. Absolutely. Susie Welsh, where should we be looking for you these days? I write a column for LinkedIn, and um, that's on careers, and I think both on the Today Show and CNBC. So uh, turn on your TVs and open your computers, and there I am. You can't get away from me, I guess. Oh, to also Twitter, please. Twitter. Yes. I love Twitter. At Susie Welsh. I love Twitter. It's a great source of, of uh, I mean, Twitter has its challenges, but I, I love it, and... Um, me too. I find it a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Jean. 
And while we're on the topic of Twitter, we get a lot of our questions from all of you on our Twitter feed at Gene Chatsky. Kelly Hultgren is with me in the studio with your questions as always. Kelly, you look very cute and fall-like. Thank you. It's my favorite season. It's boots and dresses. Boots and dresses, my go-to. You look great. Thank you. What do you have? We have a tweet from Emmy Gratisar, and I'm hoping I'm saying that correctly. Emmy tweeted asking, what advice can you give for budgeting when you are paid on commission? Love your show, by the way. Oh, well, thank you, Emmy. And I hope I'm pronouncing it right as well. When you are paid on commission or whenever you don't have a salary that's regular, maybe you're a freelancer, you've got to do something called income smoothing. And essentially, it's figuring out what your average income is. If your last six months worth of commission have been fairly regular in terms of what you expect, then just take them and average that to know what your net pay is for that period by month. That'll enable you to figure out essentially what your monthly pay is on average. So you take 12 months, you divide by 12, you take six months, you divide by six. And once you have your number, I find it's easier to deposit your checks, not into your checking account, but actually into your savings account and then pay yourself Mm. into your checking account. And that becomes the pool of money from which you manage the household expenses. And the goal of doing this is to put a little bit of wiggle room between yourself and any excess money. So if you had a fabulous month last month and you made more, you put that money into savings, you move just what your average is into checking, and it leaves you with a little bit of a buffer in your savings account. And that helps you for the months when your income is a little more lean, because Mm -hmm. then you'll be able to draw on that excess and pay yourself the same regular monthly amount. Now, the only place where this gets a little bit even more tricky is when it comes to quarterly expenses. So when you, you have things like insurance premiums, sometimes you don't have to pay them every single month. Sometimes you get a bill every quarter, and many people neglect to count them into what they have to pay month by month when they're doing the budget. So just try to break any quarterly or annual expenses into monthly chunks so that you know what your expenses are going to be. The goal is to be as predictive as you possibly can in an unpredictable world. I hope that makes sense. That does make sense. And I really like the point of even if you do have a better month than you normally do, putting it all in savings so you don't fall victim to lifestyle inflation. It's so easy to do if you put your money in checking. One of the things that we've learned from behavioral finance is that when it comes to our financial psychology, human beings are really, really adaptable. If you ever got a raise, then you've had the experience of being two paychecks in and wondering, oh my gosh, how did I ever make it on less money? You can't let that happen to you if you're paid irregularly, Mm -hmm. if you're paid on commission, because you will immediately adapt to that larger amount of money, and then you'll find yourself scrambling when it's a smaller amount of money. So you have to put barriers up to prevent yourself from living on more when you have it, because it's not necessarily a permanent thing. Thank you, Emmy. And tweet us again, letting us know how 
this advice is working for you. We'd love to hear from you again. Our next question is an email from Christine. She writes, I'm a 25-year-old graduate student who will be coming into a small sum of money. I have no debt, no savings, and no retirement fund and live paycheck to measly paycheck. After putting some into an account for emergencies, where should I look at investing it next? So I would look at a retirement fund. You you mentioned, Christine, that you don't have a retirement fund. This is a good way to jumpstart a retirement fund. My guess from just listening to your question is that you don't work for an employer that offers a 401k with matching dollars. If I'm wrong on that, I'd get into that plan and I'd make that contribution because matching dollars are a guaranteed return on your money. But otherwise, I'd open a Roth IRA. And I say a Roth IRA rather than a traditional IRA for two reasons. One, you're young. And when you are young, a Roth IRA has more years to work its magic for you. It's also more flexible when it comes to pulling out the money if you want to use it to go back to school or you want to use it to buy your first home. Not that I advocate pulling money out of retirement accounts because I do think it's better to avoid that if you can. But sometimes younger people are a little more reluctant to put money into retirement accounts because they're afraid that they will need it for something down the road. So that's what I do. And then once your money is in the account, you have to invest it. And the best way to invest it is just in a very broadly diversified portfolio of mostly stocks. Again, you're young, so there's no reason not to put most of your money in the market. Even if we have another 2008, you have plenty of years for your portfolio to come back. Thank you, Christine. And thank you for using our question box on jeanchatsky.com. We have a special one for the show. So thank you for that. You can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And while we're talking about Twitter, um, let me just mention that coming up, we've got Bobby Rabel. She is the author of a new book called How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. We're going to talk to her about that in just a second. But Bobby's giving us five copies of her book to give away. And so what I want everyone to do is tweet me the moment you knew you were a financial grown-up. What happened? It is, right? Like what happened that just made the lights go on and you realized, holy it's all it's all on me. What was yours? Oh my gosh. I you know, as soon as that question came out of my mouth, I knew that you were going to ask mm-hmm. me that. Um, what was mine? I think mine was I was living in Brooklyn with a roommate um, who actually worked for Citibank. Mm. Um, yes, she was much more financially astute than I was, <laughs> and I had racked up some credit card debt. Um, I, I had a small savings account at the same time, um, because just having that savings account made me feel safer, despite the fact that I was paying huge amounts of interest on this credit card debt. And she sat me down and took me by the hand and said, we are writing a check to pay off that credit card debt. And then you can just build up that savings account. And I think, I think that that was the moment that I realized that I was a financial grown-up. But I'm going to marinate on it a little bit, and I'll get back to you if I change my mind. I'm still becoming one. Uh, You are such a financial grown-up. I'm still becoming one. I think, so I'm 25. I think you become one, one, when you're financially independent completely. So I'm still on my parents' health insurance. I'm still on that family plan. And 
mom and dad, I'm happy to continue saving money by staying staying on the family plan for as long as you'd like me to. Um, but no, I think that's financial dependence is for me going to be the definition. But a moment where I was like, oh my goodness, like I can't believe I'm doing this is when I went and got a renter's insurance policy after starting to work for you and living in New York City and having an apartment for the first time. I just was like, I would have never thought of this. This is so bizarre negotiating with my insurance company. So that was a moment that sticks out to me. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. This is going to be a good one. I hope that we get we'll ask Bobby for more books if we get more than five good ones. Sounds good. Thanks, Jean. Thanks. All right. Today, we have a very special Thrive segment in store for you. If you're a regular Her Money listener, then you might consider the podcast a series of different financial stories, ones that we hope will teach you how to better navigate your financial life as well as your professional life. Well, today we have Bobby Rabel in the studio. Bobby is an award-winning journalist. She currently leads the U.S. Business Video Unit for Thomson Reuters, but even more exciting than that, she's got a great new book out. It's called How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. And it's advice that she curated, gathered, and then curated from high achievers on how to live your dreams and how to have financial freedom. And by the way, she's a Penn Quaker. Just got to mention that. Bobby, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Jean. And also, thank you for all of your support of the book. You know, I get asked to blurb a lot of books, and I don't say yes to all of them. I say yes to the ones that I really believe in. And the book is terrific. And it it kind of reminds me a little bit of the way that I approached my first book, which was a series of interviews with notable people about their money strategies. So what made you go in this direction? Well, truth be told, I wanted to get people's attention. I feel that a lot of people aren't paying attention to their money. We all go through life doing our day-to-day things, and we don't always stop and make a deliberate decision on purpose. Things just happen, and by default, that ends up being a decision. We have so much information that's available. A lot of the actual information, what is the difference between a Roth IRA and a regular IRA, that's out there, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean people are paying attention. So I thought as a journalist, what is a tool that I can use to get people interested, especially younger people, millennials, people that are just starting out on their adult financial lives and need this information but don't even know where to begin? What inspired the title. I'm very sort of, and and you and I had a whole discussion about how long it takes to come up with a really good title for a project. This is a really good title. So how'd you get there? And what does it mean to be a financial grown-up? So the title actually came from a conversation that I had with my boss at the time, Jack Doran, over at Reuters. And he was being uh, promoted to another position within Reuters. And he was trying to convince me to take this job um, being the team leader for the business video unit. And um, it was a position that effectively I had turned down a couple of times before because I simply didn't didn't want to be the grown-up. I didn't want to be in charge. And he looked at me and he said, Bobby, it's time to be the grown-up. It's, a, it's great that you can read a teleprompter and you've probably written every business story imaginable. You're terrific. But face it, you are the grown-up and it's time to step up. And from that came the title. Um, in terms of the context of the book, what it means is paying attention to your money and owning it and separating from your parents or whatever you were doing as a child and really being the adult and being deliberate. Making your own decisions. Making your own decisions and living with the consequences because sometimes we will make the wrong decisions, but 
we make the best decisions that we can. And that's important because if you don't make a decision, it is made for you. And that's not always the right decision. So the book has everything in it from sex scandals to health battles to what it's like to actually live in a car. You've got stories from Cynthia Rowley, Ivanka Trump, Drew Barrymore, Tony Robbins. And you use these as springboards to teach basic financial skills. So out of the role models that you interviewed, what story surprised you the most and what did you learn from it? Well, first of all, what was interesting is you reach out to people to get these stories. And the first thing I had was a fear that I would get the same story, that everybody would have racked up credit card debt, learned their lesson, and just figured out a way to pay it off. And that's the lesson. But in fact, as you mentioned, there was a wide range of stories. I think the most shocking one came from Sally Krawcheck, and that is the sex scandal that you mentioned, because I could not believe that she was generously sharing this with me and the world. At first, when I read it, I said, she does know this is for a book, right? (laughs) Um, But she did. She's very candid. In fact, she has her own book coming out soon, which I know is going to be wonderful. Um, But it has a financial lesson and it has to do with paying attention to your money. Even when you're married, even if you're one of the most successful women on Wall Street, you need to be paying attention and knowing what's going on in your family finances because you do never know what's going to happen. I'm interested about your journey. How did you get on this path and how did you get your first job? That was at CNBC, right? My first paying job, I should say, was at CNBC because I I did have quite a few unpaying internships, as many people do. Um, I decided when I got out of college that I wanted to work at CNBC, and I figured out who was the person that was hiring. And a little trivia here, that is Beth Tilson. She just gave me, well, now you, spoiler alert, obviously she gave me the job. She now goes by Elizabeth Tilson Ailes. She's married to Roger Ailes, so she's still around. I needed to get my resume to her. I couldn't get past human resources. And I ran into a very famous economist who was a neighbor who I had known because I'd been an intern at CNN the summer before. And so he knew me in that context. He was also a family friend. Ran into him at, you know, the video store at the time you could rent a video. Mm-hmm. Gene, that was something. That, that, that tells us about what know. year that was. Right. So I, I asked him, I said, look, I, I just have to get my resume to Beth Tilson. Can you please provide an introduction and give her my, my resume? And he said, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. For you. I said, why not? He says, well, I don't know how comfortable I feel with that. I said, but you know my work. You know I did a good job at CNN. He said, well, I just don't know. Um, and he's hemming and hawing. I said, okay, tell you what, I'll get my resume and a cover letter to you and I'll drop it by your house. He lived nearby and maybe you'll change your mind. Maybe you'll see an opening. So that night I go by his house and his wife answers the door and I explained to her the situation and she looked at me a little bit perplexed mm-hmm. and she said, I'll take care of it. And that was that. Several days later, I get a call from Beth Tilson, and she said, I heard great things about you from one of my favorite guests. When can you come for an interview? It's only informational. We don't have anything, but I have to meet you. I went in, informational interview, no jobs available. A week later, someone quits. Boom, I'm at CNBC as a full-time staff PA. What happened when his wife said, I'll take care of it? Well, she told him that he he had to bring it in. Yeah. She basically took charge and said, he's going to bring this in and he's going to bring it to Beth Tilson and enough with the nonsense. Wow. So in other words, she just said, this is ridiculous. You're going to help this young lady. So it's because of her that he brought it to Beth Tilson and subsequently I got the job. And she was very receptive. I mean, that's the irony. He was very cautious about sticking his neck out. And yet when he did, it worked out very well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny. There are some people who I've found, and lately, especially as, as my son was going through the process of looking for his first job, and 
you can't get somebody a job. You can only help them make a connection and hope that when they show up for that first conversation, they will present well. But some people are very reluctant to make those connections. And I got to say, as somebody who gets asked to sit down with a lot of young people and, and does it frequently, I don't understand it. Yeah, well, the truth is not everyone is as giving and wonderful as you. You sat down no, that, with me. No, that was not I mean, the that's point. The truth, but it is the point because you give. And I do feel that when you give, it all comes back. I mean, people say to me, how did you get these amazing people to be in the book? And the majority of them were never interviewed at Reuters. If we went through the list, probably um, more than half were not through my direct contacts. They were from people that volunteered to make introductions because I had lifelong relationships with them and they knew that they could trust me to present their friend well. For example, Ivanka Trump. I was brainstorming with a mom friend of mine Mm -hmm. and we thought, and this was, by the way, well before Mr. Trump was running for president. And she said, how about Ivanka Trump? And I said, wow, she's a smart businesswoman. She's known in our community. She's a really nice person. Sure, let's reach out. We reached out. She was responsive. She wrote me back directly, Jean, literally directly. 1.47 in the morning was the timestamp, by the way. So you know she's a busy mom. And she just said, I would love to support this. This is a great way to support financial literacy. What can I do to help? When do you need this by? You are doing more with this book to support financial literacy than I think a lot of people might realize or understand. Tell me about this initiative. So we have partnered with DonorsChoose.org to fund financial literacy in the classroom. So we have a big giveaway where if you purchase the book, send us proof. You can even just forward the receipt from Amazon. You can buy it anywhere, though. And we will send you a gift code to support a classroom, a Donors Choose Classroom project on financial literacy. All the details are on my website, bobbyrebell.com, but effectively, that's it. You just buy it, send us proof. The email address is donorschoose at financialgrownup.com, and we'll send you the gift code. And I do want to mention I have a co-sponsor, that is Elliot Weisbluth, who is a role model in the book, and he is the CEO of Hightower. And it's for the full purchase price yes. of the book. Well, we picked the price on Amazon, which is $18, because the price could vary. So we just needed to set a price point. So it's $18. So right now, I think it's $17 and change on Amazon. We rounded up to $18. So literally, you're basically giving $18 to donors choose to support a teacher's project to teach their kids about money, and you're getting the book for free. It's fabulous. It's a, it's a great deal, and I'm excited mainly to fund these teachers' projects. Many of them have written to me and talked about how excited they were to be included in our page. So $18, it's, you know, that's a lot of money. How did you fund this? Well, we funded it jointly myself and my co-sponsor, who is Elliot Weisbluth, who is a role model in the book. He is the CEO of Hightower. And the initial funding came from me, my grandpa, Bob, um, who recently passed away at age 103. Wow. Um, yes. He taught me about investing. When I got out of college, along with my cousins, he gave us each money every year. And he said, my only requirement is that you have to invest it and you have to choose a stock. And what you have to do is you have to tell me why you chose that stock and you have to follow up with me and let me know how it's going and gradually build your portfolio. So every year he gave us money and actually the amounts varied, but we always had to report back with our rationale. And he often disagreed. He really liked the old school stocks and we were sometimes into more 
technology, modern stocks, but it was a wonderful tool. He passed away, as I mentioned, a few months ago at the age of 103, and Mm. he did leave me a small inheritance, and I did use part of that to fund this because I think it's a great way to honor his memory. I'm going to start to get emotional, Gene, but it's very special to me. And then uh, Mr. Weisbliss just came in very generously and added to the money. So we have a lot of money to give these teachers, and we're really excited to fund these incredible, incredible financial literacy classroom projects. You can go on donorschoose.org forward slash financial grown-up and see them. Um, There's stock market games. They want cash registers. They want iPads to learn tools to better understand money at a younger age. And that's really important. That's fabulous. That's a really, really nice way of paying it forward. I don't want to leave without asking you what you have learned from this podcast, because I know that you have been listening, and I I just want to say thank you for that. I am definitely a super fan, and I've learned so much. We could go through so many different episodes. I love the one from Laura Vanderkam about time management, but especially the one that hits home, and your voice is in my head, Jean, when I go shopping at this point. Oh, no. Yes, um, (laughs) because I love a discount. I mean, who doesn't love a discount? I'm always looking for a bargain, even the dress that I'm wearing right now. It's the same dress that they have on sale, but it's a different color. So you get it cheaper because you buy last last season's color. But I did buy something full price in your honor because you've talked about the fact that you should buy more deliberately and buy what you really want, even that if that means paying full price. And how so did that feel? It felt a little uncomfortable, actually. I'm not fully comfortable because I do have this fear that it's going to go on sale and I'm the sucker that paid too much for it. So I am a little bit fearful, but I did buy, a, it's a classic white theory button-down shirt that I rationalized would never go on sale. So I'm hoping that's, I sort of hope it doesn't ever go on sale, so I feel okay about it, but it's a classic shirt, and I do love it, and it does fit perfectly, and it looks great, but it's tough to pay full price, Jean, especially I, when, you, when you're in this business. It killed me. Yeah. No, it was very tough for me to get used to paying full price, and now I'm, I've taken off the shackles that <laughs> said I was not allowed to buy anything on sale. If I see something on sale that I would have paid full price for, I will allow myself to go there. But that's the filter that I'm applying to things these days. And I I have to say, I think I'm happier with my purchases. I'm certainly wearing them more frequently, which if you're like me, you actually amortize the wearings of whatever it is you buy. And you're like, oh, well, if I if I wear this every day, you know, of course, it's worth paying for or worth paying a little bit more for. But, you know, our our own shopping psychology could be the basis for an entire show. Absolutely. I I do that with I have one very fancy coat and I literally am calculating how many years I wear it for to figure out if it was worth buying. The book is How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. BobbyRebell.com is your website. Where else can we find you? You can find me at Reuters, at of course, doing my Reuters work. You can find me on Facebook at just Bobby Rebell is my author page. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby Rebell and on Instagram, Bobby Rebell one And around. And it, around. It's awesome. Bobby Rebell, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Jean. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Susie Welsh and Bobby Rebell for coming into the studio for such a great conversation. And thank you to Bobby for the books. We're looking forward to giving them to all of you. If you haven't subscribed yet to Her Money, please take a minute and do just that. Leave us a review while you're there. We'd love to know what you're thinking, your comments, your suggestions for guests, your questions that you want answered. Every bit of that information is helpful to us. I hope you have a great week. We'll talk soon.